Let's pray. God, we exist for you. And so, Father, I ask this morning that we would realize that. Father, that I would preach knowing that I exist for you. That this congregation would listen knowing that they exist for you, God. And that, Father, we would leave here remembering as we go on with uh, celebrating, with uh, being with family members, and all the things that come with this season, Father, that we would remember we exist for you. May this time be a means to the end of us glorifying you and living to fulfill our purpose in life. Because you've made us and because you've saved us, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 for this morning's text. Go ahead and just turn there to begin with. All right. Uh, This semester has probably been my favorite in student ministries here at Calvary Bible Church. It's been my favorite because of the content of the series that we have been going through together from week to week. We took 11 weeks this last semester to explore the truth that the Bible is one big story. It's one big story instead of a bunch of little stories put together in like a compilation or an anthology or something like that. This series was called The Epic Story. Dot, dot, dot. That's absolutely true. That's what we called it. The Epic Story That's Absolutely True. Uh, we started with creation in this, uh, this series. We started with creation and stopped at several key places throughout the Bible to show how it all fits together into God's epic story of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. In Genesis 1 and 2, with creation, we looked at how God had made everything and said it is very good. And man and woman enjoyed perfect fellowship and intimacy with God in the Garden of Eden. Then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose not to trust and obey God's word, and instead they chose to believe the lies of Satan and eat the fruit of the God-forbidden tree. And at this point, almost immediately after uh, they sin, and as God is pronouncing a curse upon Satan, God gives a promise, a promise in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's a promise. This is a promise that someone in the lineage of Eve will defeat Satan. It is the first pronouncement in the Bible of the good news of Jesus Christ, who would come as a descendant of Eve. And it's been said that the entire Old Testament can be seen as an awaiting of the one who would fulfill this promise, the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. In our series, as we were going through this uh, together, we saw that the Old Testament is full of people and places and events and prophecies that point to Jesus Christ as the awaited victor over Satan. Throughout the Old Testament, God is laying the groundwork for Christ's coming 
And he's building the anticipation of it with every generation throughout the Old Testament. And at many points, the sin of God's people is described as vile, horrid, abominable, and things seem hopeless in the Old Testament. But God has mercy. Time and time and time again, God has mercy. And then the question arises, how can a God who calls himself just let such wickedness slide? So thousands of sins are committed and God's mercy time and time again All this goes by with road sign after road sign after road sign pointing to the defeater of Satan, who God reveals more and more of as the Bible unfolds. And then after the prophet Malachi records his prophecies, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence where no scripture is written, nothing new is revealed, and God's people are waiting for the promised one. Behold, our God, the king of the cliffhanger. 400 years of silence, they're waiting and waiting. All this anticipation has been building and silence. So after 400 years of silence, God speaks through a tax collector named Matthew. And how does he begin his account of Jesus, the Messiah? How does he begin it? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah. And so it goes through verse 17 of Matthew chapter one. Now, with all of this anticipation, the prophecies, the centuries of hoping and the generations of rebellion, you'd expect something a little more dramatic than a genealogy, right? What? there's no war. It doesn't start off with a war at the beginning of the new Testament. Or what about a meteor shower? That would be cool. Can we start out with a meteor shower or, or maybe an an archeological excavation where uh, uh, secrets are found about God's people in the old Testament. No, it's a list of names. And we think, really, that's how you're going to, after 400 years of silence, a, a list of names, really? The genealogy of Matthew 1 isn't exactly our favorite part of the Bible. Let's admit it. It's not exactly our favorite part of the Bible or any genealogy in scripture for that matter. But there's so much there that I don't want us to miss. And so that's why if you look in your bulletin, the name of this, uh, this sermon is called Don't Skip Over the Begats, right? That's the old word used in the, uh, the King James Version. Instead of uh, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, it's uh, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, right? The old word, don't skip over the begats. I, I think I feel safe uh, saying that probably the majority of us have come to... Uh, I've come to Matthew in our quiet times, or, you know, we said, I want to read one of the gospels in my quiet time. So I'll go to Matthew and you get to Matthew chapter one. You're like, I think I'll skip over the first 17 verses and get to the good stuff. I feel safe saying that probably most of us have done that at least one time in our lives as Christians. This morning, this sermon's all about why you shouldn't skip over Matthew chapter one. There's gold here. There's gold and we're missing it when we do that. Every time we move on to the more interesting part of the book, 
I know we believe that scripture is God breathed and profitable for you and for me. So why is Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17 profitable? In this text, we see three things I want to bring out this morning. Three things in the begats. First, we see the historical reality of Jesus. Number two, we see the grace of God poured out on wretches and nobodies. Number three, we see that God does not work on our timetable, but he always keeps his promises. I'm going to repeat those real quick for us. We see the historical reality of Jesus. We see here the grace of God poured out on wretches and nobodies. And we see that God does not work on our timetable, but always keeps his promises. So why is a list of names so important? Why is a list of names so important? First of all, they are names of real people. They are names of real people. Something so simple is really so profound. Now, if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien went to great lengths in this series of books to create this world called Middle Earth. Okay? There's a depth of precision and detail that went into this creation and it includes in this, uh, this, this world he, he uh, created called middle earth. It includes an exhaustive history of this place. It includes specific geography, a whole language that he constructed for the elves in this series of books and, and genealogies of middle earth's people groups. I mean, his vast detail went into writing these books. He created this entire world and all these different kinds of people. And he got into the nitty gritty detail of creating this place and these, and these stories. It's, quite, it's really quite incredible when you think about it. And quite dorky as well, uh, to a certain degree. I love it, but it's, it is. The Lord of the Rings... Uh, and the, the genealogies in, in the Lord of the Rings, the, the names sound funny. They sound strange. And, and so do the names in Matthew chapter one. They sound funny. They sound strange. But there's a big difference between, you know, these genealogies you see in Lord of the Rings and the genealogy here in Matthew chapter one. What's the difference? The people in Middle Earth weren't real. And the ones in Matthew one are real. They existed. They were actual people. Uh, you know, if you're a diehard Lord of the Rings fan, I'm sorry to say this, but they aren't real. <laughs> the ones in Matthew 1 are real. They lived during a certain time. They lived in a certain place with certain jobs and certain responsibilities and a specific heritage and descendants who came after them. Matthew is saying here to his Jewish audience, the real people you know of whose lives were recorded in the old Testament, the ones you've studied, they had real children and, and they had real grandchildren who yielded real people that have lived during your lifetime and live even now. And through them came another real man who is your savior and your King. His name is Jesus. The birth of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, they aren't fictional. 
Praise the Lord, they're not fictional. Jesus isn't a myth uh, or a fable meant to teach some moral lesson. Tim Keller says this, Matthew doesn't start out with once upon a time or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Doesn't start out that way. Why don't you turn with me to a text of scripture? Um, Let's turn to 1 John 1, 1 through 3. It's going to help us see the reality of Jesus. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. This is the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, he says, in the Gospel of John, he says that. He writes, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You hear all these words that he's using here? Things we've seen, things we've heard, what we've touched. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about, um, as, as an apostle, he walked with Christ. He experienced Jesus firsthand. He's saying that the apostles were more than just eyewitnesses to the reality of Jesus's ministry and his resurrection. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him. They had a multi-sensory experience with Jesus Christ who really lived, who really died and who really came back to life. He is real. Now, I am pro-imagination. I am. I'm pro-imagination. I want, I want my children to uh, fight dragons in the backyard, and I want them to fly around the living room with towels tied around their necks like capes. I want that from them. I want them to read stories like The Lord of the Rings and imagine with their uh, minds what a hobbit might look like. I'm pro-imagination because I want my children to be creative for Jesus someday. But I also want them to know the difference. The difference between fiction and reality. I want them to know that the drastic difference between the Lord of the Rings and the Bible is that the events in the Bible really happened. They aren't just representations of things that really happened or allegories of things that really happened or creative retellings of what really happened. They absolutely happened. God really did flood the entire earth and saved one family and a boatload of animals from destruction. God really did part the Red Sea and his people walked to the other side on dry land. God really did cause the walls of Jericho to fall down when his people shouted. And God really did send fire from heaven to consume a water-saturated sacrifice on Mount Carmel. And God really did cause a young virgin woman to become pregnant with his only son, Jesus. Every time 
you encounter the genealogy in Matthew 1 or Luke 3 or any genealogy in the Bible, don't let your first thought be, when do we get to the good stuff? Let it be instead this thought. Say to yourself, this isn't just a story. It's history. It isn't just a story. It's history. It's, it's not just a morality tale. It is fact. I want you to listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis concerning the reality of Jesus in the gospel accounts. It says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying that either the stuff and the gospels really happened and these writers are reporting it or else you have someone in the ancient world writing fiction like a modern novelist. See, it wasn't until about 300 years ago that people started writing fiction using a lot of detail in order to create a sense of reality in their writing. It was only about 300 years ago that it actually started happening. But something as specific as a genealogy would not have been used by ancient fictional writers. It would have been, it would have been completely uncharacteristic of those writers like uh, Homer or the author of Beowulf to write in that specific detail. It was not characteristic of that genre. So when you read the gospel accounts, when you read Matthew chapter one, when you read Matthew in its historical literary context, it's gold. It's gold because it sweeps away the, the critics that say it can't be real. People didn't write fiction like this with this kind of detail back then. It's real. We live in a world where it's so easy to access fiction and make believe. We're surrounded by a barrage of sitcoms and crime dramas, fantasy movies, popular novels, and, and video games like Sims. I don't know if you ever heard of this video game, Sims. It's, you can create basically a virtual life for yourself that's better than the one you have. You kind of make this avatar of yourself, and you go around doing the things you really want to do that you can't do in your real life. In a very real sense, we live in a culture of escape. A culture of escape. With great ease, we can move from our discontented lives to contentment in someone else's life. We can move from a burden in our real lives to rest in another world. We can run from depression, hurt, pain, and unmet expectations to a place where we can check out and dull the effects for a while. But when we go to the Bible, the story of Jesus. We don't escape to another world or another life or a fictional creation. We encounter fact. 
And not just a fact that has nothing to do with us, like the migration pattern of barn swallows or something. Okay. We encounter a fact that has everything to do with us. We get the benefits of this. We get to be enraptured by this. We get to be saved by this fact. And we are. We get to run to a person who really existed, who really rose from the dead. And, and there in this person, this real person, we find not an empty, hollow contentment or a two-hour escape from your problems, but real, all-consuming contentment and true rest from your problems. And you find epic purpose and captivating fatherly love and rich blessing. You encounter all of that, and it's a reality. Every time you open your Bible, remind yourself, this is real. And I get to be a part of it because God really became a man and really died for me and really rose from the dead for me. The historical reality of Jesus is in this text that we are looking at this morning because these people in this list weren't just made up. They actually lived and they, act, they came through a line of descendants and yielded Christ, who is real, who the apostles said we saw and heard and touched. So we're beginning to see now why the begats, why this lineage in Matthew chapter one is more important than we realize. Not only do they show that Jesus is an historical reality, but they reveal the grace of God poured out on wretches and nobodies. There's much grace in this list of names when you consider these people who are in this lineage of the king of kings. To help us get a grasp of the grace of God in the begats, uh, let's consider the nature of Hebrew genealogies for a second. Hebrew genealogies. First, genealogies were to the Jews a source of credibility. Okay, a source of credibility based on whether or not there were honorable people in your lineage. You were given honor based on whether or not the people in your lineage held positions of honor or lived honorable lives. Also, concerning this genealogy, not every single person in Jesus' genealogy is mentioned. Okay, this is a, an abridged version, which means that Matthew specifically chose the people he listed here. He specifically chose these people uh, listed over others he could have named. So there is a specific reason why these people are listed and not others. So who do we see listed here? Who is in the lineage of Christ? First of all, we see women listed here. Okay, there are women in this genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All right. On most occasions, women were not included in Hebrew genealogies because of their very low rank in society at that time. To the Jews, including women in one's genealogy did not help to build credibility. Actually, it accomplished the opposite. But it's not just that these people are women that makes them unfit for a Hebrew genealogy. It's also who they were. What kind of women were these women? 
Tamar, for instance, what kind of a woman was Tamar? Tamar was married to Judah's firstborn son, Ur, but because Ur was evil, God took his life, okay? Therefore, Tamar, fearing that she would be childless, she concocted a plan, okay? Her plan was to dress up like a prostitute, trick her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so she could get pregnant. And her plan succeeded, and she had twins by her father-in-law, whose names were Zerah and Perez. God used that sinful woman, her sinful father-in-law, and her evil plan to carry on the line of Christ, the line of the King of Kings. Grace. You see that? Grace. What about Rahab? What kind of a woman was Rahab? She was actually a prostitute. And beyond that, she was a Gentile who worshiped pagan gods. Ruth too was a pagan from the land of Moab. And she's included in this genealogy because of the unbelief of Naomi's family who left Israel during a famine. And her sons actually married Moabite women. Bathsheba is also included here. We know this story well, so I don't have to feel like I have to say a whole lot about Bathsheba. God used an adulterer. She was an adulterer and he used her to carry on the line of the Messiah. In these women, we see a copious amount of sin, but there are also other wretches in this line of Christ. What about Solomon? Right? Solomon, who acting against the will of God, loved many foreign women. Okay, married them and allowed them to lead him astray so that toward the end of his life, he was worshiping and bowing down to their false gods. Manasseh is also in this lineage. He did horrible, wicked things. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, the text says, practiced witchcraft and seduced the people of Israel to do more evil than the pagan nations that were around them that God had destroyed. But outside of women, Gentiles, and wretched sinners, God also used nobodies to continue the line of Christ. Let's think about Abraham for a minute, right? The lineage starts with Abraham, the first Jew, the first Hebrew. But when you read about Abraham in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, there's really nothing special about this guy. There's really nothing special at all about this guy. He was a guy in a long list of descendants in Genesis 11. And the text doesn't reveal that he had any important status or gifts or qualities about him. God simply chose him to be the father of the people that he was going to bless. He was a nobody. He was a nobody who was shown grace. It's the same with Mary and Joseph, right? Joseph was a carpenter, right? It's obvious they both loved God, but he was a carpenter. He was a nobody. And Mary was his very, very young fiance. But we see no reason why God would pick them to be the immediate family of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why all these misfits, wretches, outsiders in the genealogy of Jesus? Because the gospel is being proclaimed through this lineage. The gospel is here in these names. Jesus came to save people like this. Tim Keller says that Christ came to destroy the world's categories. I think that's very true. 
Christ came to destroy the world's categories. These people don't make up what the world would consider an, an honorable lineage. But God has always been about turning the expectations of the world upside down. God chose Abraham because he wanted to, according to his own good pleasure, and not because Abraham was anything special. In fact, you see Abraham doing some pretty stupid, unbelieving things in his story because his story is not meant for us to look at him and think, man, Abraham was a great guy. That's not what his story is there for. We're not meant to look at him and think, Abraham, exalt him. We're meant to look at his story and we are meant to look beyond him, beyond him and say, God is great. Because God pours out grace on nobodies like Abraham. Rahab and Ruth were Gentiles, right? Not part of God's people. But they were included and given great blessing. But it wasn't because they fought against oppression and they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And then God gave them grace because of it. It it was because God wanted to bless them. He wanted to include them in this genealogy so that we would look at them and say, God is great because he gives grace to outsiders like Rahab and Ruth. Well, you may look at the lineage and and think, well, what about David? Right? You may be tempted to say David was great and, and God included him in this genealogy. That doesn't fit into your pattern of thinking here. Well, let's not forget David. David was the smallest and the youngest of his brothers, and God chose him to be king by grace. And David was also an adulterer who conspired deceitfully to cover up his sin with his mistress by having her husband killed. But God forgave him. God forgave him so that we would look at him and say, God is great because he gives grace to wretched adulterers and murderers. God has always worked this way. It's always been about pouring out grace on the undeserved. I mean, Noah's not a part of the genealogy, but think Noah, okay? We, we, uh, we, we talked about this in our series with student ministries. Uh, we always tend to think, why did God include Noah? Uh, or why did he pick him out of everybody on the earth to save from destruction, to save from the flood? Why did he choose him and his family? He could have chosen anybody, right? Why do you choose him? And we, we tend to maybe teach in Sunday school, or I knew I thought this as a kid. It was because Noah was a righteous man. Therefore, God let him get on that boat, let him make the boat, and he let him be saved by, uh, by the boat and saved from his wrath. It was because he was a righteous man, right? That's, that's not the reason at all. It was because God wanted to give grace. He saw Noah, he poured out grace. Therefore, Noah got to be saved from destruction. That was the reason. Not because he was a righteous man. That's works righteousness. That's earning your salvation. That's earning uh, your ticket on that boat. Noah didn't do that. Was not because he was a righteous man. God poured out grace on Noah, therefore he was righteous. God poured out grace on Noah, therefore he got to get on the boat. God's always been about pouring out grace on the undeserved. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has always been doing this. 
giving grace to the wicked, the vile, the outcasts, and the nobodies. And choosing these people to be in the lineage of Christ, God was showing his grace. And he could only show that grace because Jesus was going to die and appease his wrath. Other than Jesus, there's someone in this lineage that you relate to, right? There's somebody you relate to in this lineage other than Christ. Don't, don't say, well, yeah, it's Jesus. I relate to him. No, there's somebody you relate to here. And that kind of stinks because there's no one perfect in this lineage besides Jesus. At the same time, it doesn't stink because this lineage, this genealogy is not about highlighting people in it. It's about highlighting the God who gave grace to the people in it. That's what this, this genealogy is about. The, it's about God and how he's always worked pouring grace out on the undeserving. It's not about highlighting these people. It's about highlighting God. That's why he, the, 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 uh, the best, he didn't choose the best people in the lineage to put in here. He chooses the nobodies. He chooses the wretches. The, he chooses the, the people that were outsiders to highlight his grace. Well, there's still more. There's still more that the begats reveal. Finally, our last point is that God does not work on our timetable. He does not work on our timetable, but he always keeps his promises. As we've said, the way in which Matthew begins his gospel may seem like a boring letdown when you realize that all of the Old Testament is building up to the coming of the Messiah. But actually, it's extremely wise that Matthew would start out, the geneal- or start out this book with a genealogy. It's true because Matthew's audience was Jewish. And they would have expected validation to come with the claim that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised to them in the Old Testament. It would have made sense. He was giving validation here. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's like Matthew is saying, here's the story thus far. Here's the story thus far. You know Abraham and you know David. Now let's see where their lineage ends up. It's kind of like a review with an update, right? Kind of like a review with an update. The one claiming to be the Messiah has, in fact, come through the line of Abraham and David, as was foretold. So it makes sense that the book of Matthew would start out this way. But how many of you, if you're like me, have thought on occasion, why did God have to take so long to send the Messiah? Why did he wait thousands of years to send the Messiah, thank the promise of Genesis 3.15, right? The one who would crush the serpent. Waiting thousands of years for that serpent crusher, the Messiah to come. And there could be, there could be a million reasons um, why God took his time unfolding this story, but God doesn't give, him, give us those reasons. We don't have those reasons. But a point that I don't want you to miss this morning about this genealogy is that it shows when God took time, he took his time unfolding this story. He took his time um, building the anticipation. He took his time with this genealogy of Christ, but it wasn't because his plans kept failing. It wasn't because his plans kept failing. 
That's what this genealogy shows us. It was planned. It was planned out. God, uh, there's this string that is going throughout the lives of, this, of these individuals that remains unbroken from Abraham to Jesus, this, this line, this string that continues through them from the beginning of that genealogy to the end. It's planned. God ordained it. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's exactly what happened, right? How do I know that? Because I'm, I'm reading from Genesis 12, 3, and then I flip over to Revelation 5, 9, and here's the song that's being sung. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Through the line of Abraham, all families of the earth or all nations, people groups of the earth have been blessed because God has saved through Jesus Christ people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. There's this line going through this genealogy. It's planned. It's not because God kept failing over and over again. He said, oops, uh, that one's out the window. Plan B, plan C, plan D. That's not why he took so long. He had it all planned. The begats say to us that God keeps his promises even when it's not when we want him to. I love this verse, it's Romans 5, 6. It says this, listen. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Don't miss that phrase. Don't miss it. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God fulfilled his promise in Jesus when he died to pay the penalty of our sin. And it took place right when God always intended it to take place. So take hope. As we're on this side of the cross now, we're not, we're not Old Testament saints, we're on this side of the cross. Take hope now as you look back on all the time that God took unfolding the story. And be encouraged because God is doing everything in his perfect timing. You know, and you will die at the perfect time, at the right time. Just like Christ died at the right time, you will die at the right time according to God's plan. You know what? If, if that doesn't come first, then Christ will return at the right time according to God's plan. But in the meantime, while we're waiting, don't miss the masterpiece. Don't miss the masterpiece of God's story as we're waiting. As we look back on all the time that's passed in the Old Testament, as God's people waited for the one who would come and defeat Satan and save them, we get the privilege, we get the privilege of glorying in the intricate detail and beauty of all the brush strokes God used and what would culminate in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And you get the privilege of watching what God is doing now and building his church. He's taking his time, isn't he? It seems like that we want to, you know, when we're in eternity someday, we're going to think, man, that went by like that. But now it seems like God's taking so much time, but he's building his church and we get to see people come to Jesus. We get to see people uh, enraptured by him. We get to see people captivated by him, giving their lives for him, dying for him. 
And we get to see ourselves. We get to, we, we get to see our hearts grow and change. We get to see him sanctify us. And God's taking his time. But it's a beautiful process. Don't miss the masterpiece. Don't miss the masterpiece. And I close with this. We're all part of the story, this epic story. All of history is moving toward the same goal, the glory of God and God calling sinners to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what all of history is moving toward, right? You study, we study history in our history books and in colleges, but we don't see that part of history. They, they, they don't bring that into perspective, that God is moving everything toward his purposes, his will, He's calling people to himself, glorifying himself through making a people his own and blessing them, saving them when they don't deserve it. That's what all of history is about. And we are all part of this story that God is telling. But let me ask this question. What part are you going to play in the story? What part are you going to play in the story? Are you going to be a faithful servant or a rebel who is justly punished? Which one's it going to be? Because when we read the Bible, we see those two people. We see the sheep and the goats, right? We see the faithful servants. And we see those rebels against God's will who are punished. I pray that every person in this room is part of the story by being a faithful servant and not a rebel, justly punished. We need to be rebels made friends, made God's friends through Jesus Christ. Remember this church, as you think about the genealogy of Jesus and how it doesn't highlight the people in it, but highlights the grace of God. Remember this. This story is about him. Your life is not your story. Your life is his story. And he is telling his story through us. And we get to be, you know, an extra in his big production. But it's about glorifying Jesus. And we get the privilege of being a part of it. If, if we are saved by grace, we get the, the glorious privilege of, of all the blessings that come with being an, an heir, a co-heir with Christ, adopted sons and daughters of God. But it's not your story. It's his. And it always will be. So don't fight against that. Don't kick against that. We see in the genealogy of Jesus that it ends with him. It ends with him and it highlights the grace of God. I hope, I hope today you, you see why more why uh, Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Let me take this with you and, and um, cherish it and treasure it in your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, if there are rebels in this room, Make them faithful servants so that that is the part that they play in your story. Save them, God. May they come to the end of themselves. May they crawl to the cross and see that they have nothing to offer you but their sin. And Father, I pray that you would have mercy on them because you poured out your own wrath on Jesus 
I pray you would not pour it out on them, but they would believe. May they believe God in the one who is real, in the one that cannot be denied. People keep trying to deny him, God, and coming up with ways to try and disprove him, but they have yet to do so because he was real. A real life, a real death, and a real resurrection. And we praise you for that, Father, and pray that you would make real converts, real worshipers through that real Jesus. I pray all this in the name of our Savior.